name is Matt Hawkins. I am currently the president and publisher of Top Cow Productions. I've been that since 1998. Um, I write a number of different series over the years, uh, probably best known for Think Tank, uh, Postal, Aphrodite 9, um, and probably Swing Now. My, ro my romance comedy thing that I'm doing is, is my bestseller, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's me. I'm Sarah Gordon and I guess I'm an indie cartoonist hailing from the UK and I'm currently in the throes of finishing off my first collection of short stories which I kickstarted last year. It's called Vicious Creatures. It's nine folk horror stories that are currently taking up quite a lot of my brain. Um, it should be out sometime in like late May, I think. Amazing. Welcome both to the show. It's um, it's fantastic to speak to you both. Um, and uh, as I was saying before we recorded, there's uh, there's a lot going on in the world when it comes to uh, kind of uh, illnesses and cancelled cons and things like that. But I'm, uh, I'm glad that we all managed to find the time to, to sit and chat with each other. It's lovely to speak to you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> <laughs> um, So Matt, I'm going to... I'll start with you because you are... Um, I don't like using the word veteran because that makes you sound old uh, and you're not you're certainly not that but um you were there for the like initial launch of like image comics or uh, you know the the kind of the conglomeration of uh, kind of anarchists like comic rebels at the time kind of all joining together to make this brand new thing um but am I right in thinking that you when you first met Rob Liefeld you'd never really read much comics you weren't really into into comics when you first met him that's correct I, I was taking my nephew who's 13 years younger than me to a signing i didn't know who rob liefeld was i was unfamiliar with image comics period um and i hadn't really read any comics i mean i'd probably read a couple daffy ducks when i was a kid or donald ducks or Scrooge or those things but uh never read any comics uh probably since i was a little five or six or something like that and i started in april of 93 so i've been there yeah i've been at image various image companies pretty much the whole time it's absolutely wild like the 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 culture that you were kind of um you created this this space this space for kind of uh indie comics artists and and people with like little to no you know experience with with comics full stop but also with business and and things like that how did you fit into that kind of space when you first started out uh, see that's that's the funny little part is uh, none of us knew what the hell we were doing <laughs> back then and i think we sort of uh succeeded in failing upwards for a number of years just because there was such sales velocity until we finally figured out what the hell we were doing i don't feel like i actually knew what i was doing until 98 you know so i feel like mm. top cow uh, has benefited from all the experience and all the mistakes we made from 93 to then so yeah yeah and you've been like at the uh, at the forefront of of top cow at the uh, the top of top cow for so to speak uh, since 98 and how have you seen that part of image comic grow in that in that time oh image has been uh, it's been through some wild uh, fluctuations you know top cow is, as well i think you know, I'd say the biggest shift I've seen at Top Cow specifically was that we sort of made a conscious choice to shift away from going after pure collectability and, and, and trying to establish sort of more long-term readerships, which are easier to maintain. Uh, collectors can be very fickle. And so, um, you know, one of the things I, I tried to pioneer with some of the books I did and some of the books projects we did was trying to build more of a uh, long-term sort of loyalty to to. to projects and books and writers and creators because um, you know this is one of the few businesses where you can meet these people that make this stuff and i've always felt that if someone meets me at a show and they like me personally and they like my work then i probably got it for decades mm. yeah i mean it is it is such a small world isn't it i mean as you say like you met rob liefeld kind of shook his hand and 
you know, asked him for a job, basically. And then that was kind of how you started. Is that right? That, that is correct. Um, and it was sort of on a lark because uh, there were a couple artists that are still in the industry now that were standing in that line in front of me. And it was a three hour line, which I was not expecting. Um, and so for three hours, these guys were giving me sort of an education on why there was this big line, what it was, and, and sort of what Image Comics was. I learned who Rob Liefeld and Mark Silvestri and Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, I learned who all they were. I didn't know who they were. And uh, yeah, so my indoctrination into the comic industry sort of started with Image Comics. And uh, Image Comics in the beginning were all about sort of this big, flashy sort of uh, art over story, sort of style over story. You know, and it was those honestly were not books that I was all that into. It took me a long time to kind of find my own path in comics and figure out what books I like and what I like to read. And, you know, I, I started being an editor in 1995. And one of the first projects I edited was Alan Moore. And I have to say, um, at 25, when you're editing someone like Alan Moore, it was more I was his trafficker. I was not really his editor. I was not giving him <laughs> notes. Um, I would get his scripts and pass them along to the artist. And the artist on that project was Gil Kane. So I uh, had a 25 year old guy who doesn't know shit, uh, you know, supposedly editing Alan Moore and Gil Kane. And it was uh, it's quite interesting. That is wild. And that's such a such a steep learning curve, I imagine, for you. Like I'm like, obviously, a lot of people in, you know, in your circle at that time had no idea what they were doing and kind of just winging it as they went along and, and you know, making a success of it. But to to then be working with people that have you know, being a part of the industry and kind of being such huge names, you know, did you, like, at what point did you kind of figure out, oh, this, you know, this is not just a guy called Alan that I'm working with. This is kind of Alan Moore. This is a guy that, you know, is is big in comics. You know, at what point did that kind of land for you? And did that kind of impact on how you how you worked with someone like that? Um, I, I think by then I, I did know who he was because it was, I think, Eric Stevenson very early on because I remember telling him that I was, you know, looking at a lot of the books that we were publishing and I'm like, you know, these books just aren't really for me. I mean, I understand the appeal of them, but they're not really for me. He gave me a copy of Watchmen and I think Sandman was just starting to come out then. So I fell in love with those kind of books uh, more. Sort of, that's the kind of stuff that I personally like. And, uh, you know. Mm. I uh, so I sort of patterned myself and studied like the stuff that I personally write that I'm interested in has uh, a little more depth to it. And since I have a uh, you know, I was studying physics, I have a master's in physics, I was at UCLA in the program at that point. So um, mm -hmm. I have, uh, you know, knowledge of science and the science journals that most people don't. So one of the uh, advantages I've always had in developing uh, projects is that I, I can sort of comb the scientific community for all their good ideas and use them in fiction. And uh, that's a lot of fun. It's really been sort of the uh, pattern of my success for the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And how did you first get into writing about, like writing comics? At what point did you think to yourself, well, I've, you know, I've been part of this industry that I knew I went from knowing nothing about to being like editing and, and being right in the thick of this, you know, massive sea change because the, for at the start of Image Comics, you weren't just kind of joining an industry. You were making your own industry, really. There was there was nothing like Image Comics before before you guys came along. Um, so, you know, how did you go from that into making your own comics? Well, it started with, um, I was always a big fan of John Borman's Excalibur, that 1981 film. And so for the first comic, I just wanted to write something in the Arthurian legends. Uh, so I wrote a book called Lady Pendragon, you know, and visually it looks very 90s. But uh, the story I felt 
was a little more substantive and I did a lot of research. It was interesting because back then there wasn't much of an internet. And so I had to actually read a bunch of books and travel and take photographs for reference. And so, you know, I went over to Glastonbury and spent some time over there and combed some bookshops throughout England looking for stuff to use as reference. And one of the things I always did, and I, I really liked what Alan did with um, From Hell, where he had all that material in the back that explained all his research. So uh, almost every project I've done, I've included at least six or eight pages in the back of the graphic novel that explains the research I did. And so if anyone wants to take a deep dive off into some of that material and find out why I made some of the creative choices I did or the science behind these things, you know, I've always kind of subscribed to the idea of... Uh, writing what you want to know, you know, because everyone says write what you know, but I, I, I generally, generally find a topic that I'm interested in that I don't know enough about. Um, and then I'll just start researching that type, that project or whatever it is, or that field. I'm uh, going try to find a story. And that's fun for me. That's actually what I really like to do. And Sarah, is that something that you kind of prescribe to when it comes to making your own work? Because you've got a very distinct style and a distinct um, kind of genre that you that you write in at the moment, like you, as you say, folk horror. Is that yeah. something that you had a lot of inf- like knowledge about that you wanted to impart? Or was that something that you wanted to kind of, that, that world you wanted to explore? I mean, I guess I've always been a nerd for... Uh, you know, like sort of folklore and like fairy tales and stuff like that. But it was something that I definitely wanted to dig into a little bit further. I think that it's probably good to have like a basic knowledge of the sort of the area that you're starting off in. But then you've got a reason to sort of explore and feel out and sort of augment your sort of you know, your mind. Otherwise, I don't know. Otherwise, it sort of seems to die for me, I guess. You've always got to have that mm. thing that keeps you searching. And so you're creating your own work within that space, you know, so that's got to be exciting as well, because a lot of folk and horror is all about these kind of urban legends and, and these stories that people tell each other. And that's your, you know, very tangibly kind of adding to that lore, aren't you? Well, I certainly like to think that I'm I'm trying my best with that. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> folklore's are, you know, well, yeah, folklore and, and folk stories, they're, a, you know, they're an organic living sort of thing. And I suppose that there's quite a lot to do with like call and response that I like to get into my work. Like the audience is a direct sort of part of what I'm up to. And yeah, definitely. It's, it's a living thing. You want to contribute to the tradition and not just make it like a repetition of the genre, but actually try and bring something new, new blood to the thing. Mm, yeah. yeah. And tell me about your Kickstarter then, because Vicious Creatures is a you know a collection of short horror stories, as you mentioned. Um, how did you get involved in kind of the Kickstarter process for your work? Well, it wasn't the first Kickstarter that I've been involved in. So back in 2015, I was in a created co-creator team, indie co-creator team with a guy called Howard Hardiman, and we came up with a book called Deeds Not Words, which was like a suffragette superheroines running around and beating up the patriarchy kind of thing. And we mm. had a, a modest budget, and we um, we launched like a little sixty-page book. And I I really liked with Kickstarter how immediate the like you, basically your your relationship with your um, like your audience is is so very sort of like it, it's immediate and it's very direct, I guess. And I was mm. kind of a bit, I was quite taken with that. And I knew that I wanted to come up with a project that could take advantage of that sort of, as I say, sort of lack of mediation sort of thing going on. So the reason that I went to Kickstarter rather than sort of either pitching Vicious Creatures to a like more traditional publishing house or someone like Image or something like that was that I wanted to... Um, 
get the audience sort of involved at a very, very grassrootsy sort of level with it. So um, I think I was asking for money, obviously, but I was also asking people who back the project to send me uh, like letters and things that they wanted to get off their chest, basically. The idea was that I was going to take these pieces of paper with stuff written on by various different people uh stuff them all in either i think if originally if we got to the base target it was going to be like a, a fire urn i was going to put them all in that mm. and if we managed to raise a lot of money i think it was six thousand six hundred and sixty six pounds i was going to put them all in a large wicker owl and i was going to burn them all <laughs> and then i was going to uh make a giant vat of ink from the ashes of that thing and then turn that you know, all, all of this stuff from people that were going to, really invested in the book I was going to turn that into the ink that I was going to make the book from. So you kind of hard bake that relationship between uh, like audience and creator into the piece mm. that you're making. It's it's something that you can't do without crowdfunding. And I was I was quite excited to explore that and sort of see where it went. Um, hence me basically taking it to Kickstarter when it was like half finished rather than a, a finished book on this occasion. It was fun. Yeah. It was really fun. It's been it's been a wild year. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely like uh, unbelievable. Like that's the that's the strangest kind of Kickstarter like uh, reward tier that I've ever heard. Like to be able to kind of exercise your demons through this kind of owl fire that's yeah. uh, that someone burns and then receive those ashes back in yes. kind of a, a more creative form. Yes. Would you like catharsis with that? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm from Northamptonshire, so like, you know, the precedent for this sort of stuff is pretty high. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> Alan Alan Moore weighs heavily on everybody who sort of works in yeah, yeah, yeah. that. So um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Just um, trying to kind of keep up with with the weirdness of uh, of his snake gods and things like that. I can't can't compete. Do you, do your own weird <laughs> thing. I think is the way that I I go with it. But yes, there's absolutely uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And like Matt, when you obviously when like has the as the industry has grown, Kickstarter and crowdfunding has become this um, this phenomenon, really, hasn't it? For for comics creators and for comics fans to be able to to back that, like, how do you feel as though um, like the industry has kind of evolved in order to in order to accommodate that kind of work? Well, I think there's sort of two two things that are being done on uh, Kickstarter. You see a lot of either indie creators or web comics creators that are like, uh, help me make my dream come true and get my book in print. And uh, they're sort of monetizing either uh, an audience they've built by giving them free content online or an audience they've cultivated by conventions or however they've discovered it. And they leverage those uh, that smaller audience into a Kickstarter to get something in print. And uh, that usually vaults uh, a lot of these people's careers, especially when they're successful. I, you know, I only really pay attention to the more successful Kickstarters, but uh, there, I actually was shocked when uh, Camilla, who's one of the people over there, uh, told me how many of them actually fail. And uh, I, cause I hadn't really thought about that, but it's like uh, the vast majority of them do fail. Um, and uh, so the ones that you see and the ones that you're talking about from people that are successful, like I said, there's either the indie creator asking someone to help them make their dream come true, or that's how they're reaching their audience. Or there's a company like us that's uh, using it as an alternative distribution platform. You know, we certainly mm -hmm. can't go out and say, uh, hey, help us put this, my dream of putting this book in print when I already have 6,000 other books in print. You know, so mm -hmm. um, we're using it, honestly, as, uh, as a new distribution channel. And I think uh, a lot of publishers are. And uh, we do like variations, like with the Witchblade 25th anniversary hardcover we just did um we basically uh the the only difference between the version offered through the kickstarter and the one offered through the direct market through the bookstores was that it had a dust jacket 
and the dust jacket had a, a Kickstarter variant cover on it. That was the difference. Uh, we still had like 800 people back it. We actually had to cut it off because we had uh, pre-printed the hardcover and we'd only made 800 because we expected it to, 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 we expected about 500 and we ended up with about 800 backers. So, hmm. um, but people seem to like it, you know, I mean, and sometimes you can offer yeah. interesting things like uh, I offered my editorial services at one point, you know, I offered to write something at one point, but anymore we've kind of shied away from the more exotic stuff because it tends to be very time consuming. Uh, and just basically putting product and some extra merch and uh, and we're starting to use CrowdOX and, and looking at things like some of these post fulfillment processes and, and companies that offer these services. So we're exploring that with Witchblade for the first time. I think Witchblade was our eighth campaign. Yeah, yeah. So you're not uh, you're not burning any owl effigies over at Image Comics HQ then? No, no. <laughs> uh, probably that might be more fun and make it more interesting. But uh, usually it's just there's some sort of slight <laughs> variation. You know, we'll yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's it. I think that's that's probably uh, a bit more cost effective on like uh, on a larger scale. I imagine than you know, you just burn through literally burn through owls. It's it's just <laughs> it's just so it, difficult. It gets yeah. very pricey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think it's fun. Like you can do fun stuff if you have an interesting project. You know, I mean, if like uh, if you have a project that deals heavily with the occult or with Jack the Ripper, or, you know, I mean, you, you know, I. I I think if uh, if Alan had offered a, a Kickstarter for From Hell and basically said, "Hey, he'll he'll offer a series of tours through Whitechapel where he'll tell people about it," shit, I'd pay for that. You know what I mean? I mean, I just go <laughs> yeah. listen to him talk while we're walking around and saying, "Oh, this is where this happened. This is where this happened." And uh, because you know, he yeah. researched it, he's kind of an expert at it, and I I, I love that stuff. I like. I think in most projects for me, what really gravitates my attraction to it is authenticity. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, and I think the successful campaigns are ones that do make that connection with the audience, and I think that connection can only really come from authenticity, can't it? From being kind of genuine whether that's the in the emotion and the vulnerability you put on the page or whether that's the 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 kind of the openness you have and honesty as a creator to kind of put your work out there and make as you say make those connections with your fans when you're there don't right. you? yeah and it does it it changes the relationship as well doesn't it really like it feels as though um like in, in your case sarah like it's it's a very literal give and take you know between the the fans and the creator um but even if you just kind of donating money like even if you're just like kind of giving a couple of pound or a couple of dollars like you are still as a as a fan you're feeling like you're being part of um part of the process part of making the book you know and how does that kind of affect you as a creator uh i care <laughs> i think <laughs> like i i feel i feel pretty invested in the thing um i mean i guess well c case in point like uh the the project is a little bit delayed right now it was actually originally supposed to be out last year um mm. but for various different reasons basically i, I got mugged and uh, i moved house and some some nasty sort of stuff happened so i've, I've put things on hold mm. a little bit and uh, yeah. i'm genuinely you know I, I get people uh there there is this sort of emotional investment from from my backers for me but also there is this uh you know i i feel perhaps slightly more accountable than i would do if i were working for a company or something like that there are people who are genuinely you know quite emotionally sort of involved with this thing at this point um, um, mm. Yeah, it's it's pretty hardcore, I suppose, in a way that whenever I've worked with, uh, say, a publishing house or when I've done um, like commercial illustration before now or something like that, it is not the same thing, not at all. Um, so yeah, that I suppose it's, it's yeah, very immediate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it it is that kind of uh, that 
close relationship, isn't it? And that small world. And it goes back to what you were saying as well, Matt, the idea of just this, the comics community being very, very small, very tight knit, and everyone kind of knows everyone in a certain way, don't they? Yeah, no, it's definitely, and this is one of the things I, you know, we hold an annual talent hunt where we offer like a job to a new writer or an unpublished writer or artist. And one of the reasons why we do it is because, um, it's actually quite hard to break into comics as a writer. I think the writer, artist, webcomic people have an advantage in, in, in sort of breaking in these days. But, um, you know, I mean, if you actually count the number of uh, full-time sort of people that work writing comics in the industry that are paid to do it, it's about 300 people, you know? I mean, there's 800 yeah. people that play in the NFL here in the United States, you know? So, um, mm. and uh, so it's, it's, uh, there, there's a limited opportunity, and you know, unlike say sport, professional sports franchises, most uh, comics careers last decades. I'm still competing with guys like Kurt Busiek who were writing 30 years ago. You know, so yeah. um, it's a, it's a difficult business to break into. So yeah, people tend to know each other, and uh, we tend to all know each other's business, and uh, especially with the convention circuit, because uh, you know a lot of us do the conventions, and we end up hanging out at BarCon after the convention. Mm -hmm. Everyone has their own uh, stuff going on. So uh, people tend to know your business a lot more than I'd like, you know. Yeah, it's kind of a traveling caravan. I mean, I mostly do the, the UK circuit more than anything else, but it does seem to be that, yeah, it's the same people over and over again. You are a, you're kind of a family, I suppose. Do you find that um, uh, ideas kind of percolate there as well, like ideas for new projects and, you know, whether they are something that will never see the light of day, but they're kind of fantasy ideas that you have to things that you end up actually collaborating and working with people? It has been known to happen, yeah. There's a couple of things <laughs> that I'm, I'm chatting about with um, with a couple of guys who work for uh, Vault Comics at the moment. Um, mm. Yeah, no, it happens. Whether or not these things will actually see the light of day, you never know. But it's something sparks off something which may end up sparking something else off that you actually end up making. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty, I guess, fertile um, when mm. it comes to sort of ideas and stuff. Well, that's yeah. usually uh, what I call bar con. You know, most of the deals yeah. and the projects and the creative projects are usually done after the con for over drinks or, you know, and people talk about projects or have ideas and, and have those yeah. discussions. So, you know, for me, you know, conventions don't necessarily offer a greater breeding out for ideas, but it, uh, it allows for more collaboration, more communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what do you what do you look for, uh, Matt, in up, in up and coming kind of creators? What do you what kind of keeps you interested in the like in the comics industry when you see new creators coming through? Well, I I, uh, I like it when people have a voice and when people don't do superhero comics. I'm just kind of uh, I, I I not growing up a comic fan. I didn't really grow up with this love of American superheroes that so many people seem to have, and uh, I find it honestly kind of tiresome. Um, and, uh, cause mm -hmm. there's so much really amazing content out there. And I always tell people, I'm like, you know, the one crazy thing you hear from people that read comics is like, Oh, I used to read comics. You know, no one ever says they used to read, you know, or they used to read books. You know, yeah. I never hear anyone say I used to watch movies or TV, but people will say pretty frequently they used to collect comics. And, uh, I think that sort of collecting urge and the speculation and, so many people have been burned on that because literally almost every comic since 1990 has been put in a bag and board and saved. So they're pretty much all worth, it, you know, I mean, literally <laughs> suffocating. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's a weird world, but I think when people find stories and characters they're passionate about, you know, it doesn't uh, like I have people that read my think tank book that don't read any other comics, you know, because it's sort of a, I, I consider myself a little bit of the mascot of that research uh, science industry. Cause that's what that book's about. And that, that's it, isn't it? Because so many people say, 
like oh i don't read comics as though that's something that's okay to say <laughs> or something that's like oh I don't, I don't watch tv or don't watch movies it's like because there's so many different types of of comics and different genres within that as you say there are people that are fans of of the tithe and, and and those kind of and and that kind of genre of comics but then there's other there's you know as you say oh i'm, I'm tired of superhero comics and and you know, 30 years ago, if you were tired of superhero comics, you were tired of comics. Right. Whereas now, like, it's that's that's just a. It, obviously, it's it's such a huge part of comics still, but in the in the grand scheme of things, it's it, it's it's something that you can bypass completely and still have a full current like full enjoyment of reading comics, can't you? Yeah, yeah it's a medium. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I used about 700 words there to describe that one word. Yeah, bro. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So what um, what kind of comics do you guys enjoy then? So, Sarah, like, what comics do you read when you, uh, when you like, want to relax or you enjoy comics? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, all sorts of stuff, really. I, I'm kind of one of those people that tends to sort of wander into a shop and sort of spin around a little bit and pick up something random that I haven't mm. uh, sort of you know, read before and go, oh, what's this? Uh, generally not superheroes, I think is probably the thing. And, um, mm. you know, I come from a small press background. So, you know, quite a lot of the stuff that I tend to pick up is by uh, you know, like really indie creators, people who you won't necessarily find in every single shop, stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I suppose, I mean, as an example, what have I got here? I've got uh, like, I think the last thing that I read was a thing called Disorder by Erica Price which was, uh, you know, really interesting, but really, really beautiful. And that was just something that she gave me, uh, like, when I was at Thought Bubble last year, I think, really fascinating. But, you know, I can also kick back with, um, I don't know, I mean, I've been sort of, I'm kind of in the middle of, like, finishing off this book right now, so I'm kind of trying not to read too much of the, the medium that I'm working in at the moment. But uh, <laughs> it's kind of a funny one. But um, like, I think the last, like, image comic that I read for fun was probably Sex Criminals. I still need to catch up on the next trade, but... Uh, but yeah, like all sorts of stuff, all sorts of stuff, yeah. just sort of, you know, keeping it loose and kind of trying not to get myself too bogged down in one specific like mode of, you know, storytelling or whatever. Keeping it loose, I think, is where I'm at most of the time. Yeah. 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 And what about you, Matt? Well, I tend to read sort of, uh, I, I, th I thought about this the other day because I'm on the Marvel and the DC, the Dark Horse and the Image Conflict. So I get all those books sent to me, but they're always sent later. So like a lot of the books that people mm. are talking about this week that just came out, I won't even see for a couple months. Um, so I'm a little behind yeah. the eight ball on a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I tend to follow uh, writers, honestly. And, you know, like uh, obviously Alan and Warren and, uh, you know, Greg Rucka, I like his work a lot. I like I like to read Mark Wade. There's different writers I like for different things on different projects. Um, and I like it when uh, you have novelists or film writers or people come from other media and try to write comics. Uh, I usually will almost always read those because i'm curious to see if they could pull it off or not because it's a lot harder than they always think it is yes yeah that's true why why do you think that is why do you think there is that kind of difference between writing prose and then writing comics well because when you write a comic book you're writing actually for just one person you're writing for the artist you know you're writing the directions and the uh you're, you're writing to that person and then there's the secondary sort of thing that is the collaboration between the writer and the artist which is what's delivered to the reader um and i think uh you know, there's a, a learning process. I use a lot fewer words now than I did when I first started writing, you know, and uh, hmm. brevity works. And uh, I, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I think writing romance, this uh, sunstone explosion that we had with this book where we sold to so many bazillions of copies of that book, 
creating that sort of slice of life romance category with sort of more of these adult themed comics. You know, I've written some of these and it's just so different from writing science fiction or fantasy that, uh, you know, it's uh, I actually had to go and study plays a little bit and study uh, dialogue and, and, and some of these things, because, um, you know, when you're writing something that's sort of a slice of life, you know, romance, uh, everything is about dialogue and the character interactions. I mean, that is the truth of all stories. But uh, when you're dealing with a story where dragons are fighting spaceships in the background, uh, you, you worry a little less about what's going to be visually interesting because it's sort of naturally visually interesting. But uh, creating yeah. a scenario where there's a couple that get in a fight at a bar, it, it, sometimes it's difficult to make it visually interesting. So you, you have to learn and do other tricks. Um, I've actually, uh, I've done 100% about face on my opinion of romance and romance writers. I, I actually think it's probably the most difficult thing to write, in my opinion. Hmm. Hmm. Is it because there's like, there's there's nowhere to hide emotionally? You have to kind of... You have to, as you said, there's nowhere to hide behind like kind of dragons and, and spaceships, but also you need to convey those emotions on the page, I imagine, as well. Yeah, and you have to make, uh, you really, really, really have to make the reader care about these characters. And I think that's true of any story. But, uh, you know, we use shorthand and tropes and, and things all the time. If I if I tell you a police officer, then I tell you it's a bad police officer, you know, and that's also, you know, all these things evoke a certain sort of rules and things that we all think about when those character archetypes are discussed. But when you're talking about romance slicer life, it's, it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. And uh, one of the things I have frequently done in science fiction is I'll cut to the center of the story just to get to, just to get the ball rolling. And then, you know, you sort of catch the reader up as you go. Um, you really, really cannot do that in romance. You, you have to build, it's almost like a slow burn. You have to build and make them care about the characters so that when you finally fuck with their relationship, they're like invested, you know what I mean? So, because um, otherwise people don't care. And I, I got to tell you, it, it, was yeah. a, it was a huge learning curve for me. And I'd been writing for 20 years when I started, to, when I tried this sort of romance stuff. And uh, Stephen Sayich, the guy who uh, paints uh, Sunstone digitally and writes it, he, he finally broke it down and made me go watch the first five or ten minutes of that up Pixar film where the old man and his wife can't oh, have yeah. a kid and then she dies. And just sort of studied that. I studied that because that is a, a seven or eight minute master class on how to get you to care about someone so ridiculously quickly. And then you understand why he doesn't want to move, you know. Um, mm. And uh, so getting yourself in that headspace, uh, it was really hard for me. So it was a massive transition. But uh, I feel like it's actually made my dialogue overall better. So I, you know, I really encourage people to try to break out of your comfort zone when you're writing and, and write things that you wouldn't normally do i mean even if it sucks it's still uh it's good it's good exercise yeah yeah absolutely and like sarah how have you found writing kind of um like sequential fiction like you've got these short stories that you're you're bringing together now like is it um is have you found the process of creating stories uh challenging have you found yourself kind of pushing out of that comfort zone oh yeah definitely i mean i suppose so I mean, before I started writing these stories, I was basically a commercial illustrator. So actually, you know, moving from uh, sort of, you know, image through to uh, actually sort of putting your your thoughts onto a page is a hell of a thing to begin with. And um, mm. I think like quite a lot of the stories that I've been creating, they are uh, basically me fighting my own head in in public. I guess <laughs> like there's quite a lot of self cannibalization going on, which um, they're, they're horror stories, but it's, uh, you know, they're quite often quite sort of intimate. And um, I, I'm trying to make myself, you know, 
vulnerable and honest through the stuff that I've been making, it's quite nerve wracking <laughs> in an awful lot of ways <laughs> yeah. to do that. And, uh, you know, particularly when you're working on your first book as like a, a solo creator, it's, uh, it's really quite a hell of a thing. And, you know, I'm in this, I think I've got like, what is it? Eight pages left to do, to finish off. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm really close to finishing. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, just, just in that limbo kind of space before you end up like, you know, putting this thing out in the world uh for the first yeah. time yeah so yeah it's definitely a challenge you know and you know I've got to go back and forth with my editor a little bit and stuff like that but uh, you know when when you are putting that sort of I suppose a bit like with romance or something when you are sort of you know splurging that quite sort of intimate vulnerable sort of stuff all over the page you are kind of you know it's, it's fright it is frightening uh it's fun but um but yeah it's yeah you know that's kind of where it is so <laughs> yeah yeah and did you find that Matt as well did you find that kind of uh that step we talked earlier about obviously when you first started writing comics when you made that shift did you find that daunting like being then you know going from someone that was looking after other people's work and and just kind of being you know in, in behind the scenes of the page to actually then putting your work out there to to be seen by your peers yeah it was uh it was it was a scary time you know fortunately for me it was it was a different industry back then you know and uh mm -hmm. it was a lot easier to to get success uh and get your name recognition right out of the gate i mean it's much more difficult now it's like impossibly harder now than it, than it used to be but um you know, and for me, a lot of the stories I tell are personal. I usually base most of my stories on people either I know personally or, or things that have happened to me or things, like I said, I've researched. Um, and so I, I, I love the research. It's, it's the reason I write. For me, that's the fun part. Mm -hmm. It's going and researching a story. I carry around little yellow notepads. I break things down for months. And then I finally, when I think I've got a good idea, I write an outline, you know, and sort of a base uh, property idea and pitch it to my crew. And if they're in, then I write it. Do you find that vulnerability in the writing appealing in others as well? Do you find that kind of um, when writers are, are putting something very personal on the page, do you find that appealing in, in, in the work that you read? I think it depends on what it is. You know, if it's something excruciatingly mm. painful uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and people are exercising demons or whatever they are or, or grieving the loss of a love or a loved one, mm. or, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, these things... Uh, because I've done that before where I've had tremendous personal crises and then I went and wrote something and I'm like, wow, this is some dark shit. This never needs to see the light of day. <laughs> you know? But uh, writing it was very cathartic, you know, and uh, yeah. so I, I, I think it really depends, you know, because uh, the truth is a lot of this slice of life romance is very sort of pie in the sky, happy ending, you know, stuff. I mean, you you can definitely mess with things but in a lot of these extreme situations in reality most couples just split up you know and so mm. when you put couples through the ringer and then they get back together people see hope in it and they see aspirational you know things and uh but you know reality is not nearly as as fun yeah <laughs> But there is that kind of there is that vulnerability there, isn't there? There is that obviously the romance stories you've got the happy ending and you've got all this all this kind of drama that you're you're making for these characters. But right. the reality is there as well. The real emotions is under that, and that's what you were talking about before. That's the kind of what you've got to tap into, isn't it? Really, I suppose. No, it really is because it gives you an air of authenticity. And when you when you show that vulnerability in the work, like uh, case in point, I am writing a book called The Clock right now. It's coming out through Image, and it's about uh, cancer. It's about the weaponization of cancer, and it's sort of spreading virally and people can't figure out quite what to do it's colleen doran doing the art uh, which she and i uh, work well together and uh but 
my mom has had cancer four times. Uh, she's in her late seventies now, but when I was 18, back in the late eighties, she was told that she was going to die. And so she related that to her family because she had breast cancer. And in 1986, breast cancer, cancer was not as curable. And she had one of the fear first double mastectomies and flash forward 50 years. She's still here. So, uh, you know, so writing a book about cancer when I've known people that have died from cancer. I mean, I, I worked very closely with Mike Turner for a number of years at Top Cow, and he was the godfather of my older son. Um, and, uh, right. you know, and he died at, what, 36 from cancer? I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, it's just uh, so the clock was the first sci fi story I'd ever written that I actually got a little weepy eyed about during the writing process. That actually had never happened to me before, but uh, evoking sort of uh, in in writing sort of slice of life romance, um, it's actually quite easy for me to put myself in a headspace where I get really sad. And so I can put myself in a sad emotional space. Usually it's it's through association of music or something like that, like a song that makes me sad and I'll go listen to that. And then I'll go write a sad character because then it has, a little more of an authentic feel for it. I, I use music for that and it works for me. I know everyone has their process and there's no, to me, there's really no right or wrong way to do it as long as you're making the effort. Yeah. Yeah. And what's it, um, what's it been like working with uh, Colleen Duran? Oh, she's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I really like working with her. She's been, uh, she's been a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, hopefully, uh, she doesn't hate me too much and we'll, we'll do uh, another project next year. I mean, I, I offered her one. She said, yeah, she's got a couple of things she's got to do, but you know, it was a little daunting when I realized she did that project with Neil Gaiman. Then she did that project with Warren Ellis and then, Oh yeah, she did yeah. that project with me. So <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay. Good company to have at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you're on that list. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh dear. And, and like, I find that books like romance comics and, and stories with emotional depth like that are very similar to the, the kind of things you write as well, Sarah, because you, you want to be able to tap into that emotional, uh, the depth un- like underneath the emotions, don't you? Especially with horror and especially with when you're creating works that elicit fear or elicit kind of a fear response of uh, folk horror, don't you? You know, how do you tap into that when you do writing like that? how do I do that? Well, I think part of it is finding that, you know, that, that truth with a capital T thing. And you're like, it, you do need to, as, as Matt was saying, like, you know, ground it somewhere within your own emotional, like, you know, experience or something like that. Uh, I'm also prone to uh, making playlists and things. I mood set as well. Um, So yeah, there's a, there's a great big ongoing uh, public playlist for vicious creatures that people can have a look at. And if if they're curious and stuff on Spotify. Um, Uh. Yes. Uh, Yeah. No, like I think, it's a certain amount of trying to almost um tap, yeah tap tapping into the various different sort of places that you have been in your life at some point or another uh and then you know like listening to sad music or you know music that makes you feel angry or makes you feel like i don't know happy or something like that depending on the mood that you're trying to sort of create at the time that's useful mm. um yeah just just sort of like trying to almost like method act your way through when you're when you're scripting a little bit i guess it's kind of how i deal with it apparently (laughs) (laughs) and like so let's talk about what's next for you both then so um matt you talked about the clock with uh colin duran when is that due to come out is that still in the kind of the production stage at the moment uh the second issue came out two weeks ago the third issue should be out in a few weeks uh it's a four issue miniseries so that the collected graphic novel trade paperback edition will be out i think sometime this this summer i'm working on swing volume three which is an original graphic novel series uh which is about a couple that gets into ethical non-monogamy. Uh, it's a spinoff of Sunstone. That's the main romance book that I write. 
And uh, what else am I doing? Uh, I'm working on uh, some Top Cow Universe stuff that we have not announced yet that I'm pretty excited about. Um, and uh, I, have, I have about 30 different projects I, I sort of have in various stages of, uh, of evolution. But most of my stuff I do is original. I usually do a lot of original stuff. Sometimes it's just a single graphic novel because I have a story I want to tell. But uh, I want to do more Think Tank. That's probably my favorite book I do. I just I, The fifth volume came out last year. Um, I have an idea for a lot more. So I tend to write now for the idea of uh, there being the trades, and that's where most of the sales will come from. So sometimes I don't even release the 32-page books in my stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that that's, like, that's evolved over time, like the audience for these kind of things has, has changed how people write comics? Um, I, I, the answer to that is yes, and I, I am not a fan at all of what people call deconstructed storytelling now. I mean that you need six issues to tell an origin that Jack Kirby told in six panels 30 years ago seems a little ridiculous yeah. to me. So I, I like actually things to happen, you know, in my stories. But um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. What was the question? I sort of went off on a tangent. <laughs> just, uh, just about how the audience for for comics has changed. Like with the idea of like people trade waiting and people buying uh, like graph more graphic novels and things like that. Do you think that that has meant that writers and creators have had to change how they approach writing and and producing comics? I think it has, but I think it's wrong and uh, it's just wrong headed partially because there still are the 32 page books that come out and it used to be you could pick up a number three of something and you could kind of figure out what was going on and just jump into the story you can't do that today at all you know when people write for, just for the trade they're essentially writing a mini movie and uh, I always liked and the reason why I thought comics writing was unique is because it had a serialization of it where there was a new story that came out every month or whatever or so and uh, those mm -hmm. were intact stories, but there was also this global storyline that was going on. And I always likened it when I talked in the 90s to the X-Files. I mean, there was the Monster of the Week storyline, but they had the ongoing mythology stories. And uh, entertainment is so different now. I mean, TV is not even like it used to be. I mean, it used to be, you know, these episodics, uh, you could pick and just watch any, any single episode of a TV show. Can you imagine any of these uh, streaming <laughs> series starting with episode four? You'd be lost. You know, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't love it. I understand it. Uh, it also depends on who's reading it. The women who read uh, a lot of the slice of life romance stuff, uh, they don't read 32 page comics. They don't buy them. They don't go in comic stores. So they only buy the graphic novels and they're not even necessarily even aware of the other stuff for the most part, especially if they don't read regular comics. And what we've discovered here in the U.S. is a lot of those women were 15, 20 years ago and they were reading Tokyo pop manga. And, uh, and now they're they're uh, 20 years older. They're more sophisticated, and they want you know more adult content. And uh, that's a, a huge growth industry for us. I mean, I, I would I, I'm always shocked at the uh, at the number of men that I know that don't read, including my two sons, which drives me insane. <laughs> that's that's it, isn't it? That's where that kind of uh, fan base has come from, really. Like a lot of people uh, grew up reading manga, and a lot of people grew up. Uh, appreciating uh, even on a subconscious level the fact that there was there were comics out there and like manga was like led the way in many ways when it came to um different genres of manga so there was like sports and there's there's romance comics and and there's you know there's cooking comics there's all that kind of thing for for manga fans so if you if you grow up with that choice not seeing that in in western comics is it must be a little jarring i imagine for for some 
fans. Well, and, you know, historically, comic shops were not exactly uh, bastions for uh, welcoming women, and at least in the United States. So I think a lot of things have changed, and I think it's part of the reason why there are so many fewer comic stores than there used to be. Um, you know, when I started in 93, there were 15,000 accounts that Diamond and, and the other distributors had. Uh, now there's a couple thousand, 800 of which buy 80% of the books, you know, I mean, yeah, so yeah. there, there is a significant decline in the number of, uh, you know, point of sale outlets in the United States and Amazon does such a, an amazing job of competing. I mean, I, I get this all the time on Kickstarters cause, um, I, I can't ship for free. I just can't do that. You know, we don't have the, yeah. uh, uh, economies of scale or the ability to do that. So when we do our Kickstarters, we make them available to international customers. We always tell them, I said, look, it's probably going to cost you double the price of whatever it is to ship it to you. You know, it's a 40 pound or it's a four pound uh, hardcover. You know, imagine shipping that from Los yeah. Angeles to South Korea. It's going to cost something. So, and people bitch about that a lot. And I always tell them, I said, then don't buy this version. I mean, we're, it's going to be offered through Diamond UK and, and Panini will probably publish the the better content that we do internationally anyway. So you can just wait and get it in whatever format you want. I don't know. It's a brave new world. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, we didn't really print trade paperbacks at all. Uh, Top Cow, when mm. I first started, we did not print trades at all. And uh, everything was 32 page books. And we didn't even worry about, you know, whether it was a four issue, a six issue or a 12 issue story arc. We just told whatever stories we wanted to tell. And so, you know, 90 to 95% of our revenue was direct market, 32 page comic sales. Um, direct market 32 page comic sales now might be 10% of my business total. Wow. You know, I mean, oh so you're talking going from 90% to 10% in a 20 year span. I mean, that's, that's a radical shift in, uh, in, in how the business is, 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 you know, done. But see, here's the thing I always tell people. I said, look, everyone loves stories. Comics have always been around. I don't see them going away anytime soon. There's always a new platform, whether it's digital, whether it's this, whether it's that, if you're a storyteller and you're good you're always going to be able to find work. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it comes down to really at the end of the day, doesn't it? And and what about you then, Sarah? Like you're, I imagine yeah. your entire time is taken up with uh, with uh, Vicious Creatures at the moment. Oh yeah, definitely. Like as I say, <laughs> it's, uh, it's got to that sort of crunch stage right now where it's just taking up the entirety of my brain. Um, yeah. So yeah, that should be out by, I, I am hoping like late May is like my, my final deadline for this thing. It should be out in time for, well, assuming it's, it's still on, then MCM Expo will be uh, where I'll be, I'll be launching that in London. So yeah. hopefully for that. And then after that, I've got like, three different projects that i can't actually talk about right now um <laughs> so sorry i always that. love that though I, I always love that i always say that's the sign of someone doing well when it's like oh i can't talk about that right yet yeah like hopefully hopefully we'll see it's that it's that kind of stage um there is like a i think depending on how those three sort of things go like you know i may be announcing some some stuff at some point during this year um and well there's also like a i think possibly next kickstarter will probably be uh like i've got this working title for a thing called corn wife which is kind of like uh british countryside meets it kind of like um yeah kind of (laughs) (laughs) uh it should be fun i'm I'm looking forward to it it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting so we'll see amazing (laughs) yeah yeah that's amazing well thank you both for joining me this has been a genuine pleasure to talk to you to get to know you um all about the you know the comics that you make the comics that you're a part of and and the comics that you love to read as well thank you very much for joining me thank you very much for having us yeah (laughs) That's the Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics podcast network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. 
The show is on Twitter at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at That's The Issue Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.